Father, uh, you are a God who has um, kindly and graciously spoken into um, this world, uh, this world that you created and yet which um, turned against you, rejected your rule. Um, thank you that uh, in our uh, dark and fallen state, you have spoken in into it, um, into uh, our lives, into this world um, with the life-giving news, this message uh, that uh, promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, in the person of Jesus. Um, thank you. Uh, and as we look at the portion today of your word in Mark's Gospel, we do uh, ask that you would work deeply um, at the deepest level of our beings, uh, in, our, in our, the things that drive us, um, our hearts, uh, we pray that you would uh, open blind eyes uh, to see uh, the glory of Christ again today. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Wally. Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning comes from uh, Mark chapter 8. Verses uh, 22 through to chapter 9, verse 1. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, What do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Amen. Morning. When you think of a powerful king, what image comes to mind? Is it a big, tall, masculine man with a gold crown and a robe? We have a queen. Does she fit the image of a powerful leader? Queen Elizabeth is the anointed queen of England. She was set apart for a special purpose. On June 2nd, 1953, she was anointed by the church and swore before God to govern under the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel. She was set apart to be the head of the Church of England. She is the ruler of the kingdom with the responsibility to govern the people of the Commonwealth. And she's also to maintain, preserve and protect the settlement of the Church of England its worship, doctrine, discipline, and government. Huge responsibility. In the same way as the Queen is set apart to rule the Kingdom of England, Jesus is the Messiah, and he has been set apart, anointed by God, to be, to be the ruler of God's Kingdom. We are halfway through Mark and we've reached a vital passage in the book. We're in chapter 8 of 16 and we've reached the first of two great moments of recognition of Jesus. It's the turning point where Jesus is finally recognised as the Messiah, God's anointed King. And we now understand that Messiah is the Hebrew word for that means anointed one, God's anointed one and Christ is the Greek word for God's anointed one, so it gives a bit more meaning to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We need to understand too that anointed, God's anointed, signifies holiness or separation unto God. The giver of divine favour. And also appointed is... a. Uh, anointed is appointed to a special place or function in the purpose of God. Remember when we first started Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that he titled his book, The Beginning of the Good News About Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We have the first 
of two great moments of recognition that he is the Messiah. Since then, up until now, Jesus has been focusing on his own identity, that he is the Christ. And this passage is the first time that anyone recognises and confesses that he is the Messiah. The rest of Mark focuses on the path that the Messiah must take, teaching that he is the suffering Messiah, the Son of God. And I'll explain this a little later. But for now, the way of the kingdom is unexpected. Christ doesn't rule the way people expect a king to rule. And so today from Mark, chapter 8, verse 22 to 9, 1, we're going to see that Jesus is the Christ. He's also our hope and our example. I'll split this passage into three parts for us. First of all, that Jesus is the Christ, from chapter 8, verse 22 to 30. Second, that Jesus is our hope. We've got verse 31 to 33. And third, that Jesus is our example. That's 8.34 to 9.1. Jesus is the Christ. We kick off with Jesus healing a blind man. Very interesting passage. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hands and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Big moment here. Up until now, the disciples have been spiritually blind, not recognising that Jesus is the Messiah. But the disciples' eyes are about to be opened. The healing of the blind man took place in Bethsaida. It's a Gentile land. It was near Bethsaida that Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 men, including women and children, would have been about 20,000, with just... Five loaves of bread, two fish. One of the most well-known miracles of Jesus. So it's no wonder that when they arrived, these men recognised him and rushed to him, believing that he could heal their blind friend. They knew Jesus would and could and would heal him. Jesus' response to the blind man is moving. He doesn't send him away because he's too busy. He doesn't even just get the healing done with there and then. He doesn't even get his blind, the blind man's friends to do, bring him out to where he wants him. Instead, Jesus uses his hands of, as instruments of compassion. He takes the blind man by his hand and walks him out of the village. Probably so he wouldn't draw too much attention to himself in the village also. He then uses his hands as, as instruments of healing. Now, if you're like me, you're a bit grossed out by the thought of him spitting on his eyes. 
I read that and go, that's a bit disgusting. Why did he do that? But uh, more than likely it was was a sensory thing because the blind man couldn't see and he's used to people's touching. Jesus did it to... For, for his benefit to know that he was doing something remarkable to him. He was healing his eyes. He spit on the man's eyes so he could feel what was going on. This is the only time that Jesus made two attempts to heal someone. Of all the healings he's done, he goes to heal this blind man and his first attempt didn't work properly, did it? Why? Did he have a bad day? Did he lack the power? Uh, Was it because he was a bit tired and worn out? He was uh, showing his humanity? Or was it because the the blind man lacked faith? Well, it was neither. Jesus is fully in control and he did this on purpose. Remember, Jesus is God and if he tries to do something, it's not a try, he does it. He does what he intends to do. He's God. He's perfect. Jesus healed the blind man in two parts as an illustration of what he's going to reveal about the disciples. As we're going to find out, the disciples' eyes are open enough to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but they have a blurred vision of the Messiah. Their vision of the Messiah is like people that look like trees walking around. And their vision will later on be clarified. This is also important because this healing is important because it's the second healing of a blind man that has taken place in recent days. In chapter 7, verse 32 to 37, Jesus heals a deaf and mute man. In these two miracles, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Messiah. You see, he's fulfilling. The messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 35 verse 5 that says about the time of the Messiah then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Jesus is showing the disciples that he is the Messiah. Now finally after all this time and what, everything that's taken place we come to Peter who is finally convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. We look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So after the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, they travel 40 kilometres north to Caesarea Philippi, a Romanised city. Interestingly, that well, we're going to find out that both great recognitions of Jesus in Mark, that he is the Christ and the Son of God, occurs in a Roman context. Jesus asked the disciples who people say he is. They say Elijah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. The Jews, including the disciples, thought Jesus was just a prophet. Come to announce God's great intervention. 
Remember Jesus calming the storm? They're in the boat, and the waves are tossing, the wind's blowing, their, their lives are in danger. And Jesus rebuked the wind and waves, and immediately it went calm. And the disciples looked at each other and said, Who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They had no idea who Jesus really was. You see, prophets, in Jewish history, prophets would come to proclaim God's word, prepare the way for God's intervention, and like Elijah, perform miraculous signs. So for the Jews, Jesus ticked all the boxes for being a prophet. But he didn't tick any boxes for being who they believed to be the Messiah. They, Jesus did not match their description of a Messiah. Jesus then asked the disciples who they say he is. Here we go. This is, this is the good part. After all this time, having the Messiah living with them, teaching them, performing miracles in front of them, so healing people, casting out demons, even forgiving sin, fulfilling prophecy, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, recognises Jesus for who he is. Here we are, the first soaring climax of the gospel story. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. This is massive. In the context of, this, of Mark, this is huge. This is the, the, a huge part in Mark. And as we'll see, the disciples are only halfway there in understand, or seeing clearly what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. So Jesus, oh, sorry, so Peter finally sees that Jesus is the Messiah, but then Jesus says not to tell anyone. The Jews have been waiting for centuries for the Messiah, and the disciples are looking right at him. At last he is here. They must have been full of excitement and so eager to go and tell everyone that the Messiah is finally here. But then Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone. Do you know how hard it is to keep an exciting secret? I know how hard it is. My daughter knows how hard it is. Recently, we found out that uh, my wife's pregnant with, an, with another baby. And uh, a little after we found out, we told our eldest daughter, Crystal, and said, we've got a big secret for you. You know, we're, we're going to have another baby. And uh, so she's all really excited about it. And we said, no, this is a secret. You can't tell anyone. The very next day, we get, uh, we get messages from people that she's already told. <laughs> Congratulations. And so anyway, later on, we pulled her aside and said, we said it was a secret. How come you told people? Oh, but Daddy, it was so hard. It's so exciting. It's, so, it's just too hard. I couldn't keep it a secret. You can just imagine the disciples here. They finally... Have the Messiah with them. Hooray, great hope. But he then bursts their bubble and says, no, you can't, you can't tell anyone. You've got to keep it to yourself. Why? Why did Jesus say, don't tell anyone? This is because the Jews' expectation of the Messiah. 
and I'll explain what the Jews' expectations were soon. But the highlight of this part of the passage is that the disciples finally recognise Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed King. Matthew's account, Matthew also has this story in chapter 16. It said, uh, gave two promises for believing that Jesus is the Messiah. First, you'll be used to build the church or the kingdom. And second, salvation, a place in the kingdom of heaven. And this carries us to our next point, that Jesus Christ is our hope. From verse 31, Jesus is the Christ and is our hope. From verse 31, he, began, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I want to know, do, does everyone here know what this is? Has anyone ever heard of Magna Mail? Magna Mail? Oh, I don't know. A, I know quite a few people do. do. We do. For me, it's a, a, a symbol of false hope. It says... Winning scratchy inside, $25,000 on there. You look at that and go, oh, I better open it and scratch it, see what I've won. You know? It's false hope because you open it, you scratch away, and it's usually just something that's only worth about five bucks. And to claim that prize, you need to spend at least $50 in their little shop. False hope. It reminds me of the disciples. This is how the disciples viewed Jesus. On the outside, here we go, he's the Messiah, he's come. But their understanding of the Messiah is wrong. So really, they have a false hope in the Messiah. So here we are, the disciples are in celebration because the Messiah is finally here. But then Jesus ruins the mood by saying, but I must suffer and die. Their jaws must have dropped. Messiah's not meant to suffer and die. You can just imagine the awkward silence. This is Jesus' first prediction of his death. And of course, who is first to open his mouth? Peter. Peter has a, has a bad habit of doing this, thinks out loud. Does anyone here know people like that? I can do that sometimes. <laughs> thinks out loud. Peter rebuked Jesus for saying these things. Here is why. This is why Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter, being a Jew, believed what all Jews believed the Messiah would be. In Jewish understanding of prophecy... The term Messiah refers specifically to a future Jewish king from the line of David who is expected to save the Jewish nation and rule the Jewish people during the Messianic age. 
he would shatter unrighteous rulers and purge Jerusalem from the nations, bringing them under his power. This was the thinking of the Jews. This is the thinking of the disciples. They misunderstood the prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus didn't want the disciples telling people because of this. So if they did, it would have gone viral. And they would have tried to make him king right there and then. And this is not what Jesus came for. Who understands the game of cricket? Great game. Great game. If didn't. Anyway. Imagine there's just one ball left in the game and the batting team needs four runs to win. The batsman, instead of facing the ball, just puts his bat down and steps away from the crease. Leaving a free shot at the stumps for the bowler. The, batting, the rest of the batting team are furious. They're jumping up and down. What are you doing? But uh, anyway, he sticks with his decision, lays the bat down, walks away. And all the bowler needs to do is hit the stumps or put the ball into the wicketkeeper's hands. So he runs in, and in the excitement of the moment, he goes to bowl, slips and bowls a wide, wide enough that it went past the keeper and went to the fence for four, giving victory to the batting team. <laughs> this victory was completely unexpected, would you agree? Completely unexpected. No one saw it coming. This was guaranteed victory to the bowling team. In the same way, Jesus, having the power and ability to bring victory to the Jews from their enemies, lays down his life to bring victory to all people from sin. This brought his spiritual kingdom in. In weakness, Christ displayed his power, defeating God's enemy, Satan, and the power of sin and death. And one day still to come, Jesus will return and establish his throne on earth forever. Last week, we looked at the problem of that which defiles coming from within. And there's nothing we can do to clean our inside. We can't. It's impossible. And that's where we need Jesus. And that's why... He does this, and he's our hope. Here's the solution to that problem. Jesus Christ, God himself, came to earth to save the people he created, us, from our sin. He did this because sin is the enemy. It separates us from the love of God for eternity. So he provided us a way back to be with God forever. This is why he had to suffer and die. Suffering and death and separation from God the Father are the consequences of sin. But even though Jesus didn't deserve it because he was sinless, perfect, he suffered and died in our place. He took the punishment for our sin, for that which defiles on the inside of us. It deserved punishment, but he took it upon himself for us. 
and on the third day was raised again because he is the Son of God, defeating death and sin for all who trust in him forever. So everyone who declares him as the Messiah, this is what he does for us. And now that our punishment is paid, all we have to do is believe and accept this wonderful gift that Jesus Christ offers, making him our Messiah and living for his praise. This is why Jesus Christ is our hope. In him we have a future. Without him we do not. For Peter, a crucified Messiah was the death of hope for the Jews. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 that the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. They need to relearn about the Messiah. It is through the unexpected death and resurrection of Christ that the kingdom of God would come, bringing us hope. So here is Peter, trying to stop the Messiah from saving the world. Jesus then rebukes Peter. Right in front of the disciples, calling him Satan. Imagine Peter's reaction to Jesus calling him Satan. It's pretty harsh, don't you think? Can you imagine the disciples' reaction, looking at Jesus and Peter? Imagine if you were, be, you were called Satan for trying to correct someone's view of Jesus. Be pretty awful, wouldn't it? Jesus made it clear here that Peter did not have the concerns of God in mind, but human concerns. They were physical, not spiritual. Jesus calls Peter Satan because Satan was tempting Jesus again, this time using Peter's misunderstanding. Satan is trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross because he knows that if he does, he is defeated. So Jesus rejected the temptation when saying, Get behind me, Satan. Satan was using the words of Peter to tempt Jesus. Satan was tempting Jesus' human side. We know that Jesus is God, but he's also human. So Satan is tempting Jesus' humanity. Being human, Jesus was terrified at the thought of going to the cross. We see this when we read his prayer in the garden the night before his death. He asked if this suffering would be taken from him. And he was sweating blood in fear. He was trembling. He was, in his humanity, fearing what was to come. But he says, Your Father, your will be done. Satan also tempts us by using our human emotions and our thinking as fuel. Jesus Christ, though in fear of what he's going to go through, put our needs above his own. He succeeded in going to the cross, bringing us hope. But not only is Jesus Christ our hope in his suffering and death, but he's also our example. Jesus Christ is our example. And we see this from verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come, has come with power. Jesus' teaching about himself was unexpected, that he had to suffer and die. And now he teaches us what it looks like to be a follower of him, which is equally as unexpected. Try and picture yourself in this situation. You've been invited, invited to your neighbour's birthday party for a barbecue. And there are quite a lot of people there. The group conversation digressed toward the topic of Christians and Jesus. And before long, the conversations get heated and there's people getting angry towards Christ, about Christians and then others erupting in all sorts of unpleasant jokes. You're feeling very uncomfortable. And then your neighbour says, hang on, aren't you one of these Christians? Wow. Now you're really feeling uncomfortable. You've just been put in the spotlight and feel like everyone's aggression towards Christians is just going to be heaped upon you. You're now faced with an awful choice. Will you deny that you're a Christian to save yourself from being insulted and rejected? Or will you stand up for your faith in Christ and accept the rejection and insults that may come? The disciples probably thought that being a follower of the Messiah meant sharing in his power, being great rulers themselves. But like the Messiah, it is opposite. Being a follower of Jesus meant openly identifying with him as the rejected leader, sharing in his rejection, and if necessary, his death. Standing up for Christ in this world, admitting to people that we are followers of Jesus Christ, often results in humiliation, rejection, persecution, physical and emotional. And we, do, we, we know, well know, that there's people around this world that are dying every day because they stand up for Christ. And luckily in this country we don't, but we still face the emotional rejection and persecution. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus called the attention of everyone standing there, including the disciples, saying, To be his disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it, and whoever loses their life for him will, and the gospel will save it. For Jesus, the cross was humiliating, and it meant great suffering. Carrying your cross means a daily choice to be prepared for suffering. The image calls for us to accept rejection 
As followers of Jesus, we will be insulted and laughed at by a world who thinks, acts, and lives differently. So we are faced with a choice to try to save our temporary physical life by pursuing the world's acceptance that results in loss of real life or to give our life for Jesus and the gospel that will result in saving our life. Unexpectedly, living in this world, self-preservation may result in self-destruction. In verse 36 to 38, Jesus then asks, what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? In verse 36 and 37, one's real eternal life, he's saying here that one's real eternal life is too high a price to pay for temporary earthly acceptance. We need to live with an eternal perspective. Look past the physical aspect of life and realise that our life here and now, whether we are young or old, is just the beginning of eternity. This also highlights verse 38 that says, The one who is ashamed of Jesus and his words will be faced, will face being shamed by Jesus when he returns in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This is the final judgment. And in Matthew's account, Jesus says he will reward everyone according to what they've done. This is in chapter 16, verse 27. This doesn't mean we purposely go out looking for rejection. No. But this shows a hard heart towards people. But as we try to love and be friends with everyone for the sake of the gospel, having a soft heart for people, we purposely try to keep the peace but expect rejection. So at the barbecue, the right choice to make, though humiliating, would be to be honest and stand up for Christ and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Accept the persecution for Christ's sake and like Christ, show them grace in the midst of their laughing at you and joking about you or being angry at you. Remember, Christ was nailed to the cross and he looked down on the people that nailed him to the cross and said, Father, forgive them. The more he was persecuted, the more he was gracious towards them. But also, please don't be surprised by who we can be rejected by. We can also be rejected by people close to us. Family, close friends, even other Christians. I know... Too many people that have been rejected by even other Christians just for standing, making different stands for Christ in their life. And since preparing the sermon, it's been highlighted to me the rejection that you get in the world. I mean, at work, people really get heated about the topic. And I've even had my own dad go and tell people that I'm not a true Christian for decisions that I make, for things that I do. And uh, it hurts. It hurts really bad. But this is what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus tells people that some of them will not die before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
Again, this was misunderstood by many who thought Jesus would come back in their lifetime and set up his kingdom right there with the Jews. But again, the kingdom of God is unexpected. The kingdom of God come with power began with the death and resurrection of Christ and will end in his triumphant return as judge. There he will establish his throne and in appearance of powerlessness, God's power is at work in saving people. See, the kingdom of God is wherever God is king, wherever God is in charge. This is the heart of every believer. If you're a believer and God is in charge of you, he's your king, you are in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is in you. Until his kingdom... uh, until then, until Christ returns and sets his kingdom up, his spiritual kingdom here and now is characterized by suffering. And when he returns, there will be no more suffering, but everlasting peace. That's the hope we have to look forward to. The Christian life is self-sacrificial. It is living for Christ and the gospel, no matter what the cost. We need to realise that a commitment to Jesus is worth everything because of who he is. Jesus is the Christ. He is our hope and he is our example. Unlike the Queen, whose reign is physical, not spiritual, whose reign is temporary and not everlasting, whose reign is over the UK, not the people over the whole world that have ever lived. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king, has established his kingdom unexpectedly, defeating the power of Satan, defeating sin and death for all of his followers by his death and resurrection. We are a part of his kingdom. And though we won't experience the fullness of this reality here and now, we have this wonderful future awaiting us. Until then, we expect and endure suffering and rejection for Christ, just as he endured suffering and rejection for us. Please remember that Jesus is the Christ, our hope and our example. Let's pray. Father, all we can say is, wow, you are amazing. You are so good to us. You are our Messiah, our King. Thank you so much for coming and taking the path of rejection and suffering, dying in our place on the cross. You took our punishment that we deserve, our sin. And Lord, in response, we say thank you. And that you are our king and we want to live for you. 
even if it means suffering and being rejected by the world around us, we choose to live for you. Thank you for your great love for us. And we love you so much in return. Amen.